0: Our topic this morning to start off is revelation, general revelation, special revelation, and the question of continuing revelation. What a way to start your Saturday. Let's open with a word of prayer. I'll start by just reading part of Psalm 19, and then we'll pray. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, we call on you this morning again. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. And so we want for our words and our thoughts to be acceptable and well pleasing to you. God, we thank you that you are a gracious God, uh, a God who is not offended when we ask you to declare us innocent of our sins, but in fact, you do declare us innocent and present us blameless before yourself because of Christ. And so we come to you with these prayers only in the name of Jesus, not on the basis of any righteousness in and of ourselves. God, we thank you for this opportunity. We have to study your word, to think about how you have revealed yourself and and are revealing yourself uh, to men, even in our generation. God, I pray that you would help me and help everyone in this room to truly understand these things that we'll talk about and help us to understand in such a way that we love you for these truths and love you more uh, than we do with more of our whole heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Theology question three and four. This is my email address, which I'll show you again at the end. You can email me if you have any questions. Uh, So here is theology exam question four, and it's actually several questions in one. So the question asks you to define general revelation, to define special revelation, to describe the nature of their authority and to describe their relationship to one another. So we're going to try and do all of those things. You have to include all of those in your answer. All right. Well, here's a document you need to know about. If you're doing the uh, ACBC exam, there is a document that is the ACBC Standards of Doctrine. Okay? So you shouldn't just, you know, copy-paste from this document into your answers. But the answers that you write on your exam, uh, ACBC wants to know if you have the same doctrine that the organization has, okay? And you'll see the four parts of the question that I put up on the board are all actually answered in ACBC's own documents. So we'll unpack this, but I'll just read it right off the bat. This is a good biblical statement of the doctrine of Revelation. God discloses himself to humanity in two ways. Special revelation is God's disclosure of himself to the people in the pages of Scripture. General revelation is God's disclosure of himself to the entirety of humanity in the things that have been made. General revelation and special revelation each come from God and so are of equivalent authority, though they differ in content. Special revelation discloses detailed information about the character of God and how to live all of life in a way that honors him. General revelation is a disclosure of the beauty and power of God, which leads to judgment. The subject matter of general revelation is the character of God and not mere facts about the created order. General revelation requires special revelation to be properly understood and applied. All right, we'll go more slowly through all these things and look at where they come from in the Bible. But first, what is revelation? Well, that's a good statement. Um, in the ACBC standards of doctrine, it is God disclosing Himself to humanity, God's self disclosure, God giving or sharing knowledge of Himself. And broadly speaking, there are two um, categories or avenues of revelation general and special revelation. So God speaks to us about Himself through nature, general revelation, and the scriptures. God is presently speaking to men through these ways. Now, it's, it's typical for us to think about God's revelation through Scripture in that way. God speaks to us through his word. But also, as we'll see, uh, the testimony of God in nature uh, is also described in the Bible as God speaking to humanity. Speaking about himself, God's self-disclosure. Another helpful way to think about this is just to say that God displays his glory in the world and in the word. And you and I were created to see the ways that God displays his glory or, or hear the ways that God speaks about himself and to enjoy it, uh, which is part of God sharing his own joy that he has in himself. And then to respond to God's divine communication of himself God speaking of his glory to respond in praise and trust and worship. All right, so now let's develop these two broad categories of Revelation, general and special. The first being general that we'll think about. Again, God's disclosure of himself to all of humanity and the things that have been made. We call this general in Revelation because it is general in its scope. That is, it's accessible to everyone. It's also general in its content, that in that it's less specific, less detailed, less filled out than what is revealed in special revelation. It's more general. Uh, the main texts that build the doctrine of general revelation are Psalm 19 and Romans 1. So let's look at Psalm 19 first. You can open in your Bible. I'll also put some of it on the board here. Now, note all of the revelation type of words in the beginning of Psalm 19 about the heavens. Revealing words, words about God speaking. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, pours out speech. Night to night, reveals knowledge. Reveals is a good revelation word. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And then it talks about the sun going from one into the heavens to the other. So according to this psalm, it's as if the whole created order, the heavens and the earth and everything in them, the cosmos are revealing something. The cosmos, the universe, the heavens are speaking to humanity about something. It's like the heavens and the sky and the sun have a voice. And we hear speech and words coming from them. And what is the creation saying to man? Behold the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. What is specifically being revealed? The glory of God. Who he is. General revelation is about God. Again, from ACBC Standards of Doctrine. The subject matter of general revelation is the character of God and not mere facts about the created order. Now, that seems like a a fine distinction. Why is that important? Well, that's an important distinction for the task of counseling because all divine revelation including general revelation, carries full divine authority. So creation's testimony about God and God's God's glory is truly from God and so it is authoritative and can only be rejected or even questioned in sin. Now, um, some will say that even truths that like modern scientists or secular psychologists observe about people in the world, we should think of as general revelation, truth that comes from God, because uh, as people say, all truth is God's truth, okay? which there's a sense in which that's true. There's an application of that, which is certainly wrong. But if the findings of your secular uh, psychology book, um, that things that are, even things that are truly observed in humans, if that is general revelation, if that is truly revelation from God revealed to all men, then that, that carries authority as being a word spoken from God, okay? But that is not general revelation, General revelation is not God revealing everything that could possibly be known about anything. General revelation is God speaking about himself. God speaking about his own glory through the things that have been made. So the heavens don't declare the water cycle. The heavens don't declare the distance of the sun from the earth. The heavens don't declare, um, you know, the, the problem of mankind and, and what the solution is to it. God does not speak to mankind through everything in creation about things in creation. God speaks to mankind through the things in creation about himself. Okay. Um, we could go down that rabbit hole even further. But instead, I just gave you Appendix B. It's at the end of your notes. From Heath Lambert's The Theology of Biblical Counseling. And it's just four pages in the book. Biblical Counseling, General Revelation, and Common Grace. And that goes for, develops further into why it's important that we see general revelation as specifically being limited to what God reveals about himself through the things that have been made. Okay, So the true things in your biology textbook, even the true things in there, that's not general revelation. Okay, if anything is general revelation, it's only so much that God speaks about who He is—that He's the Creator, that He's powerful, that He's wonderful, that He's beautiful, that He's good, that He's righteous—through the things that have been made. Okay? If that's not clear to you, that's okay. Read the appendix, and, and you'll get it. Right? But again, that's important because in question number three, it asks you uh, what is the nature of their authority. OK, and so the reason they ask you, what's the nature of the authority of general revelation is because they want to make sure that you're a biblical counselor and that you understand that all revelation from God is authoritative and the things that are revealed outside of Scripture through nature are just that God is the one who's created everything and deserves our worship and glory and that we've fallen short of it. OK, so not at me if that's kind of clear. All right. 70% of you that is great <laughs> so to, to sin against God's general revelation to, to reject God's general revelation is sin it is totally authoritative it comes from God general revelation is also general because of the scope of it or the audience okay um Continuing on in Psalm 19, verse 4, their voice, the voice of the heavens and the sun and everything God has made, declaring the glory of God, their voice goes through all the earth. Their voices goes to the end of the world in them, in the heavens. He, God, has set a tent for the sun, which comes out. The sun does like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's the sun's rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit is to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So from one end of the heavens to the other, no one can escape the testimony of general revelation. It's captured dramatically at the end of verse six, isn't it? Nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun. So God graciously reveals himself in a general way to every single individual on the globe. And this revelation is being communicated all the time. Verse 2, day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. This revelation of God through creation truly is general. It is perfectly general. It comes to everyone all the time, in every place, through everything that God has made. John Calvin says, wherever you cast your eyes... There is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of his glory. You could not anywhere and at any time avoid this testimony of who God is, even if you tried. And this is why, as we'll see, Paul argues in Romans 1 that no one will have excuse when they stand before God. When God calls man to give an account for his sinful life... And sentences him guilty. No one will be able to say. But God I didn't know. You didn't tell me about who you were. And what I owed to you. Yes he did. God revealed himself generally. Through everything that he has made. To everyone. Just as nothing is hidden from the sun's heat. So no one is hidden from heaven's declaration. Of the glory. Of God. Now turn to Romans 1. And this is a. Helpful PowerPoint slide for maybe one person on the front row. <laughs> that is the full text of Romans 1, 18 through 32. What you see on the screen is also in the pages of your Bible. I want, first of all, you to notice the strength and clarity of general revelation. And we are talking about general revelation. Verse 18 Now, the wrath of God is revealed, revelationed from heaven. Okay, so again, we're talking like Psalm 19 about what is revealed from the heavens through the things God has made. Verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, In divine nature. Have been clearly perceived. This is a clear revelation. Ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made. That's where that phrase comes from in ACBC's doctrinal statement. The things that have been made. So they. Everyone who is exposed to this general revelation. Which is. Everyone. They are without excuse. For although they knew God. That's strong language for um, how much of God has been. God has revealed himself through general revelation. It's enough that men should know God. No one does. But that's the fault not of a deficiency in how God has revealed himself through nature. But because of man's sinful heart. And rejecting that clear testimony of who God is. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. So what specifically is known about God through general revelation? Well we can summarize it this way. And these are the three main points on your notes. We see through general revelation the broad outline of who God is. He's glorious, etc. And in light of that, the broad outline of God's moral law. And in light of that, the broad outline of man's sinfulness. That's Romans 1. Okay, so um, the heavens declare the glory of God. And so in light of that, we know something of what we owe to this glorious God. And in light of that, we know that we fall short of what this God deserves from us. So in that way, through general revelation, God reveals the broad outline of who he is, the broad outline of his moral law, and the broad outline of man's sinfulness. Okay, let's establish that by working through parts of Romans 1. First, who God is, right? What can be known about God is plain to them. God is not revealing um, through the heavens, or in general, generally through nature, how the brain of man corresponds to his actions, or affects his emotions, or something. God is revealing things about God through the things that have been made. Verse twenty. What has He shown? His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature. Verse twenty-three. These people, when they rejected this general revelation, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God. Okay, that's what was revealed. God revealed his glory. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God. Okay, so, add all of these things up. This is what God has revealed. His invisible attributes, his glory, the truth about him. In, in a, a broad and, dare we say it, yes, general sense in light of that through general general revelation it is also and secondarily known what god is owed basic moral law although they knew god they did not honor him as god or give thanks to him and they exchanged the truth about god for lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator they did not see fit to acknowledge god so the implication of this Is that all men know that God should be honored. All men know through general revelation that God should be thanked. All men know through general revelation God should be worshipped. God should be served. God should be acknowledged. All men know this. And since God has given enough revelation for men to know that they owe God these things, God justly holds man accountable for not doing so in light of being shown this. So man knows offering these things to God is right, and they know that not doing them, therefore, is wrong. All right, it's 922. You've got a long way to go today, okay? <clears throat> more, more things... Um, 26 and 27 is an example of how... I thought I took that slide out, but since it's here, I'll talk about it. Uh, the sin of homosexuality is especially singled out in Romans 1. I think that's because it's a particularly striking illustration of the inverted nature of sin, right? And, and the main sin that's talked about in Romans 1 is that man rejects God, how he's revealed himself, and serves the creature. That That's a really backwards thing, Right? for man to turn away from worshiping and serving the creator and and turning and worshiping and serve created things that God man made man actually to rule over. And then they, it's like they bow down and serve those created things. Well, homosexuality is not singled out because it's like the worst of all sins, but it's a, a particularly striking illustration of the inverted nature of sin, of man living in ways that are just backwards, contrary to, to how God set things up to be. Just like instead of worshiping the Creator, uh, they do exactly the opposite: worship the creature. So too, man uh, naturally knows by how God made them that um, what natural passions are are men and women coming together, but in an inverted way, they are consumed with passion for one another. Verse 29 through 32 this also shows that man knows god's basic moral law right they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness and then paul inspired by the spirit lists a lot of instances of that unrighteousness and then down look at verse 32 though they know god's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die they know All men know that doing the things in this list, just sin, are wrong. And and people who do this deserve to be punished. How do they know that? Because God has revealed his glory. And as an implication, men all know how what God, the broad outline of what God deserves, and some implications for then how we're supposed to live before him. So man knowing these things also knows that they do not live up to God's moral law. Verse 32, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, knowledge of God's righteous law also happens through another gift of his to man that is also given generally to all men. It's a gift called conscience. It's another way that men generally know basic moral law and their sinfulness. Um, Let me say this. When I put... I see people writing down a lot and that could be because I'm saying things that are really helpful or it could be because... My notes are just kind of stinky. So um, when I put my email address up at the end, if you say, hey, will you send me your PowerPoint? I'll just email it to you, and then you can have all these slides, okay? So, yes. Be free. Yeah, good, good. So conscience is a faculty God has given all men generally by which they know something of basic moral law and they have sinned against it. But just as sinful man rejects and suppresses God's general revelation through creation, man also rejects and suppresses God's general revelation through conscience. So here's that summary again. Through general revelation, all men know these things. So general revelation gets you halfway to the gospel, doesn't it? God created everyone, man has sinned, man deserves to be punished for his sin. But that's as far as you're going to get through general revelation. There is no gospel. The general revelation only gets to the bad news that sets you up for the need for the gospel. So we could sum up these three things like this. General revelation reveals God's glory. Therefore, that we should glorify him. And therefore that we have fallen short of his glory. Oh, there it is. So what does general revelation accomplish in sinful man? Verse 18, verse 20. At the end of verse 20, it says they are without excuse. We've talked about this. So general revelation makes everyone justly accountable to God. And justly worthy of condemnation. General revelation establishes all mankind as guilty before God and deserving of damnation. And all mankind knows this because of general revelation. So, general revelation is condemning in function, it's condemnatory. And that's why Paul introduced this discussion of general revelation in the way he did in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So according to Paul, there's the one word summary of the efficacy of general revelation. Wrath. Wrath. Now, Psalm 19 didn't say, the heavens declare the wrath of God. It said, the heavens declare the glory of God. Creation formally... Is a revelation of God's glory. But because man rejects that testimony of God. Functionally. That revelation of God's glory is. A revelation of God's wrath. Which the conscience bears witness to. As well. Okay other related passages. I'm going to skip these for the sake of time. Other avenues of general revelation beyond creation and conscience. Some uh, theologians sometimes add um, something else. But the two main avenues are creation and conscience with creation being the the, uh, main emphasis in the scriptures of general revelation. Special revelation. Special revelation is God's disclosure of himself to his people in the pages of scripture special in that it's more specific in both content and audience than general revelation so if general revelation shows the broad outline of who god is and god's moral law and that we've sinned uh god's special revelation fills in the details in special revelation we see god's glory in in hd and and he tells us everything we need to know to live the life god wants us to live Special revelation is also more specific with respect to audience. Not every person at every time in every place has access to special revelation. You should be profoundly grateful that this is in front of you. And not only is it in front of you, but God has worked in your heart graciously to where you actually believe it and you cherish it. And you, and you find it to be sweeter than honey. This is God's grace to you. That you have and embrace. Special revelation. Um, we're going to move through special revelation much more quickly. Because you've already heard two lectures. On the inspiration and authority and sufficiency of the Bible. And that is the avenue of special revelation available to us today. Now. There have been several avenues of special revelation from God through history in the past, right? Uh, personal encounters, God spoke directly to Abraham. The Lord used to speak to Moses face-to-face as a man speaks to his friend, as, as in the verses I've listed. God also revealed himself specifically and specially through the mighty acts of redemptive history, and the exodus, the miracles of Jesus, Jesus' resurrection, everything Jesus did special revelation came through spoken words, through prophets and apostles. The prophet would say, thus says the Lord in old Testament or new Testament times. Then that was direct revelation from God. Special. The climax of special revelation was the person of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. Everything Jesus did or said was special revelation from God about God because Jesus was himself God incarnate, is God incarnate. Who God is, what he's done for us, what he desires from us, what he will do in the future, all of this was climactically revealed in Christ. And so all of the avenues of personal revelation... That were listed before find their climax and ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And Christ commissioned apostles and prophets. To proclaim and explain the significance of who he was and what he did. And we have that testimony of Christ's apostles. And the revelation of God in Christ in our New Testament. So the last avenue of special revelation written on your outline, written words, the Bible. We exist today on this side of the climax of God's special revelation, his disclosure of himself. And so we have access to special revelation in the Bible. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says that long ago... And you can, you can think of this page, okay? Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In many ways, God spoke to our fathers. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. We are living in the last days and have been, Since the first century. First Corinthians. Paul said we are the people on whom the end of the ages has come. Now the scriptures do teach us also. uh, To look for another. Dramatic personal encounter with God. When God reveals himself. um, Personally and directly. And especially again when Christ comes back. And it's no accident that the last book of the Bible, which talks about Christ coming again, is called Revelation. God will disclose himself in an even fuller and more glorious way. One more note on Hebrews 1, and this has overlap with our next question. Question. Hebrews 1 says, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. In the context of the book of Hebrews, that emphasizes the finality of how God has revealed himself in the son and also emphasizes that there's no more need to keep receiving revelation from God. Now that the climax of Revelation has come. Long ago at many times in many ways. Think about how the book of Hebrews talks about sacrifices. Long ago, they would have to offer sacrifices over and over and over and over and over. But now that Christ has come, the ultimate sacrifice that all of those sacrifices pointed to ultimately, no more sacrifices are needed. Christ has come. Uh, Long ago, many men served in the priesthood. And they would offer sacrifices and there was a lot of insufficiencies about them. One of their insufficiencies was that they would die. And so they couldn't keep serving as a priest. Well, now that Christ has come, which all of those old priestly ministries pointed to in the first place, now that he has come, there's no more need for another high priest. Okay? The same thing with the covenant. Previously, God established covenants with his people. Okay, But now that Christ has come, there's been a new and better covenant established. There's no more need for another new and better covenant because God has established a new covenant in Christ. Christ has come. And so likewise, long ago, God spoke to our fathers in many times through many ways. But now that Christ has come in these last days, God has spoken in his son, which all those previous words pointed to. There's no more need for further revelation from God. Christ has come. The climax of of everything that God was revealing all along has come. This is the word God has spoken in the last days. There's a finality and a sufficiency to it. So it should make sense to us that our access to special revelation is in the Bible, the authoritative apostolic witness to the work of Christ in his person. All right, relationship between general and special revelation general revelation requires special revelation to be properly understood and applied and i would say that is especially in light of man's sinfulness because special revelation we hear the gospel the good news about how because of christ we can have all our sins forgiven and have our hearts changed to where we really can um, embrace and celebrate and cherish the glory of god and worship him for it instead of suppressing it because we have a a more fundamental commitment to living in our sin. Interestingly, the two main texts which provide for us the building blocks for a doctrine of general revelation, we looked at them, remember Psalm 19 and <coughs> Romans 1. Those both speak about special revelation right next to where they speak about general revelation. Psalm 19, after verses 1 through 6 about the testimony of the heavens through the glory of God through the heavens, the things that have been made. Right after that, it starts to talk about um, God's special revelation through the Bible. And all of these things that it lists, revives the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, warning your servant, promising the servants of God great reward. All of these things, I think, intentionally um, are listed beside god's revelation through the heavens to show the superiority of what of what general uh, special revelation teaches us what it accomplishes even and hence in verse 10 special revelation is more desirable than the finest things that god has made it's more to be desired than gold even much fine gold and sweeter also than honey Likewise, um, in Romans 1, the first half of Romans 1, Paul is talking about his ministry of the gospel. And then in 116 and 17, he talks about what has been revealed in the gospel, which is the main message of the Bible, and compares it to then what is revealed in general revelation. Romans one sixteen, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the Bible, special revelation, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. But in general revelation, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. So through, the te- through what God has revealed in general revelation, mankind knows enough to know that it deserves to be punished. What is revealed in special revelation, mankind knows how they can be saved, how they can be counted righteous by God through faith in Christ. Yes, question. Yeah, so keep going. And when it says, from heaven, 18, that's creation. Yeah, from heaven, that represents the things that have been made. It's, I think it's like a synecdoche, which is like a, a part of the whole that represents the whole thing. If I say, come, come look at my new wheels outside, I'm not saying, come look at the tires on my car. I'm saying, come, come look at my car, and part of the car is standing in for the whole. OK, I think that's what's going on from heaven, because later it says the things that have been made. This, the gospel, I don't think is, you know, a synecdoche for the scriptures in, in context. This is just talking about the gospel, the, which is I'm applying that to special revelation, because what is our access to the gospel? It's in the scriptures. This is the apostolic testimony. This is the apostolic testimony of of the gospel. And this is all that God did you know, to prepare the way for the gospel. And the gospel is the main message of the scriptures. So no, technically, I think that, that gospel is referring to um, the message of the person and work of Christ. Special. It's special. And it, that is special revelation. And our access to the gospel is, is in the Bible. Although the Bible says other things that all point to it, right? So is that is that clarifying? Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay, um, I already talked about why these doctrines and reinforce why we're not integrationists. The example of a struggling married couple. Just to bring things home about your counseling ministry, how does general revelation apply to a, a married couple who are who are always, you know, bickering with each other? Okay, the truths of general revelation can only show them that God made them and that they deserve to be judged by God for how they're treating each other. All right, well, if you want a counseling ministry based on general revelation, that that's as far as you can go. Special revelation shows them how they can be forgiven by God, how they can, for doing that, how they can be empowered by the grace that's available in Christ Jesus to actually live in ways that are pleasing to God, which are also more detailed in the Bible, and um, how they can start to treat each other in a way that honors him and is genuinely good and enjoyable for each of them. All right. These are the four aspects I would love to say. Uh, does anyone have any questions about any of these points in this question? But we don't have time. Because we need to talk about... I do care about you, though. Because we need to talk about your position on the nature of continuing revelation. Prophecy, tongues, words of knowledge. All right. So here again is the question broken up into parts. Describe your position on the nature of continuing revelation. So I want to emphasize that this is not what is your position on miracles? This is what is your position on continuing revelation? Is God continuing to reveal himself speak to humanity through things like prophecy and tongues and words of knowledge, which I think is just basically teaching or something like it. So. Explain whether you believe prophecy is a present gift in today's church. It's not explain the relationship between your understanding of the gift of prophecy and the sufficiency of scripture. All right, we are going to fly through this, but that's okay. Is special revelation continuing beloved? Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now that Christ has come, the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. Okay. Um, that is a phrase signaling finality and completion. I talked about Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 already. Okay. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That is God's final and best and climactic word to us. Jesus. Okay. And then Jesus commissioned a a band of men that he called his apostles to go and speak authoritatively about who he is and what he's done. So are there still those guys apostles? All right. That's the key to the argument. Okay. I already said those things. Redemption and special revelation with it reached its climax in Christ That redemption and revelation go together. Okay, when whenever God would do something, a there was really significant for redeeming His people, there would be kind of an explosion of special revelation with it. Okay, the the whole first five books of the Old Testament are basically all surrounding the event concerning um, the Exodus from Egypt. Okay, Uh, outside of the book of Genesis, but even the book of Genesis is written by Moses. Moses. Good for you. Okay. So whenever God's redemptive acts in history and God's revelation of himself are, are always clustered together, okay? God does something amazing to save his people in history and then God speaks to humanity about what he's doing, okay? So if the climax of redemption has come in Christ, the climax of revelation has also come with it. Okay, the New Testament is the word of God given through Jesus' apostles? I Men he sent out to speak in his name. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14 37, Do you not recognize the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus? And the foundation for the church is this apostolic testimony concerning Jesus. That's why the Nicene Creed confesses that there is only one holy Catholic, which means universal. Apostolic church. The church is apostolic. The church is built up of those who believe the apostles' testimony con- concerning who Jesus is and what he did. Okay. All right. Understanding how prophecy and tongues are connected to apostleship is the key to settling this question. The apostles laid an authoritative, here's a five step argument, okay, for establishing um cessationism the cessation of gifts like uh that tongues and and prophecy have ceased functioning in the church of god okay here's step one of the argument the apostles laid an authoritative foundation of revelation for the church ephesians 220 the household of god is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets christ jesus himself being the cornerstone John 17, 20, Jesus said, I do not ask for these, my disciples only, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their word. Again, Jesus is going to build his church based on who believes the testimony, the authoritative testimony of his apostles. We have access to this deposit of apostolic truth in the Bible, okay? So Paul 2 Thessalonians 2.15 talked about um, his instructions for the church through his spoken word or by our letter. 1 Corinthians 14.37, I referenced this earlier. Paul said, the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. 2 Peter 3.15 and 16, Peter equates Paul's writings with Scripture. Even in the days of the apostles, they recognized that the letters the apostles were writing were Scripture—they were authoritative words from God—and likewise, along the same lines, apostolicity was the main. I may have—I may have mispronounced that. Whether or not a book was written by an apostle or, or a close associate of an apostle was the main criteria the early church used to recognize—not to declare—but to recognize which books were truly inspired of God. And therefore belonged in the new Testament. Okay. Apostleship was temporary. Apostles were the authorized representatives of Jesus that he chose to bear authoritative witness concerning himself or were the criteria to be an apostle. You had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. How do we know that? Well, because in Acts one, they replaced Judas. They needed another guy to be the 12th apostle. Who did they choose? Who did the Lord choose? Matthias, okay? And when they said, we need another apostle, they said, okay, we need someone who has been an eyewitness of the resurrection, who has seen the Lord. The, our, our faith is built upon the foundation of eyewitness testimony. These men actually saw Jesus raised from the dead. So Matthias met those job requirements and he was specially chosen by Christ and commissioned by him. Uh, like Paul was in Acts ex- 915 interestingly also in first corinthians 9 1 where paul is trying to establish his own apostolic authority he says to the corinthians to emphasize he's an apostle am i not an apostle have i not seen jesus our lord okay all right if you're an apostle you you are an eyewitness to the resurrected christ and the apostles were handpicked by christ Christ said to Paul, not only he appeared to him, I've seen the risen Lord. And then he said, you're my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles. Go. All right. There are no more of these guys. Okay. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that he was the last one, right? First Corinthians 15, Jesus rose from the dead in verse five. He appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of all the apostles, okay? I'm the least of the apostles, I'm the last of the apostles, because last of all, I was an eyewitness of the risen Christ. Also, when James, the apostle James, was killed in the book of Acts, Acts 12, they didn't replace him, okay? Okay? It's not like Acts 1, oh, one of the apostles died. We need more apostles, okay? So even in the, in the flow of Acts, we can kind of see that apostleship would be um, a, a temporary, a foundation lane, serve a foundation lane function in God's revelatory plans. Okay. Prophecy served the same authoritative, foundational, revelatory purpose as apostleship. And a simpler way to say that is just Prophecy and apostleship go together. They serve the same purpose. Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, you might read that and think, oh, okay, so like the New Testament and prophets refers to the Old Testament. And actually, no, that's not what prophets are referring to here. Because a few verses later in Ephesians 3.5, Paul says the mystery of Christ was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, like the Old Testament prophets, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So in the early first century, the mystery of Christ by the Spirit is being revealed to Christ's apostles and a group of prophets. Okay, the gift of prophecy was alive and well in the church in the first century. Uh, Tom Schraner helpfully says the early churches didn't have the complete canon of scripture for some time, and so an authoritative and infallible prophetic ministry was needed to lay the foundation for the church in those early days. Also in the lists of, of spiritual gifts, frequently apostleship is placed first and then right next to it, prophecy Because they serve the same authoritative foundation laying function. Ephesians 4.11, 411, he gave the apostles the prophets. 1 Corinthians 12.28, and God is appointed in the church. First apostles, second prophets. They serve the same authoritative revelatory function. So doesn't it make sense if apostleship is temporary because the foundation has been laid and prophets served the same function as the apostles, okay, if there are no more apostles because their job is complete, there are no more prophets. Their job is complete with them. Tongues go out with prophecy, which went out with apostleship, because tongues were prophecies. Tongues were not just people miraculously speaking in a language they don't know. I've heard some people say that there are missionaries who uh, go to a different country to an unreached people group and god miraculously enables them to speak a language they don't know i praise god okay i think that's a miracle that is like the gift of tongues in the bible but that is not the biblical gift of tongues because in the biblical gift of tongues people were speaking miraculously languages they don't know and what they were speaking was prophecy they were speaking authoritative infallible direct speech from god it was more than just the miracle of being bilingual all of a sudden okay tongues were prophecies and we know this for a couple of reasons in first corinthians fourteen five, an interpreted tongue was the functional equivalent of a prophecy paul says in first corinthians 14 i want all of you to speak in tongues but even more to prophesy The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets. So if someone speaks a prophecy, that's greater than someone who speaks in tongues, because if someone speaks in tongues, right, they might be speaking in a language that no one else in the church knows, or at least not everyone in the church knows, so not everyone's built up. So prophecy is better, you're speaking words from God that people can understand, unless the tongue is interpreted, in which case it's just as edifying to the church's prophecy because it is a prophecy. It's direct speech from God spoken in a language previously unknown to the speaker. Likewise, at Pentecost, Peter explains speaking in tongues using Joel 2 about how um, the people who receive the Spirit will prophesy. Okay, So tongues were prophecies. Therefore, Prophecy and tongues together with apostleship were temporary. Apostleship is clearly temporary. Almost no one says that there are still apostles like there were in the New Testament. So everyone, uh, almost almost everyone, is a cessationist in some way. Almost everyone says at least some spiritual gift is gone. The spiritual gift of apostleship is gone. Okay? Apostleship is clearly temporary. Prophecy functioned together with apostleship. So it was also temporary tongues when interpreted were prophecies. They're also temporary. One, two, three, four, five. We did it. All right. Here's a key question. Is the gift of prophecy different? Mm, too many is there on the screen is the gift of prophecy different in the new Testament than it is in the old Testament. Are prophecies in the new Testament ever uncertain and fallible. Okay, we ask that question because people who say that no prophecy is still alive and well in the church and they want to to hold that prophecy is still alive and well, but they don't want to threaten the uniqueness of the Bible. They say, well, prophecy in the New Testament is different than prophecy in the Old Testament prophecy in the New Testament. Come on, Someone can say something like, you know, I think I want you to do this, but I may or may not be wrong. So it's like prophecy can be mixed with error, but still be prophecy. And and they have a couple of texts that they point to in and, and it just doesn't. Support the claim. Um, there's no indication in the Bible there was ever any word of spoken prophecy that did not carry full divine authority, demanding complete obedience and trust in that word because it was truly from God. So every prophecy in Old Testament and New Testament times, unless it came from the mouth of a false prophet, came with thus saith the Lord authority. It was inerrant, it was inspired. It was from God. Prophecy was always infallible and inerrant. Does 1 Corinthians thirteen eight through 10 prove or disprove cessationism? Just briefly, some people go to this text and argue one way or the other, say, look, here it is. This proves cessationism. Look, here it is. This proves cessationism is wrong. I think it proves neither. Okay? So that's why I gave you that five-step argument. This text teaches, I believe, that um, whenever Christ comes back, things like prophecies and tongues won't be needed because we'll, we'll know in full, we'll see Jesus. So we, we won't need the things that were revealed through gifts like prophecies and tongues. But that doesn't necessarily mean that those gifts will continue up until the very moment when Jesus comes back. It just says that they will, when Jesus comes back, there won't be any need for stuff like that, okay? Okay. So, you know, some probably some people who teach up here might disagree with me and say, no, first Corinthians 13 is a good argument for cessationism. I don't think it settles the matter. And I'm almost certainly right. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. finally, how does the sufficiency of Scripture apply to the question of continuing revelation? If the Bible is sufficient. No more revelation is necessary. Okay. So if the Bible is sufficient for counseling, for us to know to live the life God wants us to live in a way that glorifies him in every and all situation, then even apart from the question of whether or not prophecy is alive and well in the church today, it's not necessary if the Bible is sufficient, okay? He hasn't God hasn't told us everything he could tell us to live the life he wants us to live. But he has told us everything we need to know to live the life he wants us to live in the scriptures. And that's sufficiency. And you have heard a lecture on the sufficiency of scripture, right? Okay. The word that God has spoken in these last days is enough. And we have this word about Christ and from Christ through the authoritative witness of the apostles preserved for us in the scriptures. All right. Here's my email if you want the PowerPoint. Or or if you want to contact me for any other reason. Let me close in prayer. God, thank you for speaking to us in these last days in your son. The word about Christ, the gospel, is marvelous to us we thank you that you've worked in our heart that we feel that way, that we believe that way about the gospel. God, thank you for your sufficient word, which is able, first and foremost, to make us wise for salvation in Christ. God, I pray that you would help us to uh, use your sufficient word um, to help people, other people, to become wise for salvation in Christ and to become equipped for every good work, uh, all so that you would get the glory in the way that we live and in the way that the people we try and help live. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.